Jen and I had this long conversation the other day about when is it appropriate to stop calling a baby by months and start calling their age by years. We decided that maybe we all need to all go back to months. Jan, we figured hers up. She would be about, I think, 812 months old. We were with Erlene uh, James yesterday. She will be 100 in October. So on October the 10th, she would be 1,200 months old. We decided that maybe what, how they counted in the Old Testament. That might have been how they lived so long. They just did it so they could have a New Year's party at the end of every month. Every time they had a new moon, they could have another party. All right, I'm going to ask you this morning, if you would, to go to Genesis chapter 24. We're going to begin there. And while you're turning there, I'm going to begin this morning in prayer. Lord, we, we sang this morning about the Shekinah glory coming down. We know that the only real difference that will be made in this room, in the lives of the people sitting here, and the lives of the ones that they will touch after today, is truly depending on us receiving the Holy Spirit in this moment. I pray, Lord, that in the picture that you gave me just as we were singing, that everyone sitting here would in this moment feel the presence of you coming to sit down by them and in them, that it would become that real this morning, that you have come into this place and that you mean business this morning, that there are things to be said, there's truth to be revealed and truth to be received. And I pray, Lord, this morning that when, the, when each one of us hear what I heard in my spirit this past week, that when, when we hear this, that it will change dynamically lives of people sitting here right now, that the change will be so significant that it will drastically change their lives, their days, their nights, and their life before you from this point forward. That won't come because of my ability to speak or because I get to share something that I learned. That will only happen by your presence here. So I just pray in this moment that what we sang would become everyone's reality. The Shekinah glory, the fire of the Lord to come in this moment. Just as you came into the Holy of Holies each year. To come into this place so that we feel it at the top of our head and we feel it under the soles of our feet. That you would just saturate this place this morning with the truth of the Holy Spirit with your presence, and that we wouldn't leave here saying it was a good sermon or it was good music or a good time of praise, but we would leave here saying that we have been in the presence of God. Let that be our reality this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. During a counseling session this past week, God reveals something to me. Again, understand the word revelation is just very simple. It just means that something was always there And God took a covering off of it so that you could see it for the first time. It was revelation to me. Something that many of you already know, maybe have understand far better than I do. But for me this week, there was an unveiling or an uncovering of a truth that that happened during a counseling session this past week. When it was revealed, I knew that it was for a bigger audience. I knew that it was something bigger than just for me. And this is, again, one of those revelations. If we have the ears to hear, and if we have the eyes to see and the spirit to believe in this revelation, it will change us. The truth of God has no other purpose. As we, and I've said it many times, and it wasn't original to me, that every revelation, every time God uncovers something, it is the beginning of our next encounter with him. 
Every revelation is designed to create the next encounter. It's no different than I made a promise to myself and to Jan many years ago. Because I will never, I will say this honestly. And if if men, you need to agree with me on this. If you think otherwise, you will learn quickly. We will never figure women out. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) We are as confused today as we ever were. But I made a promise that I would study at the University of Jan for the rest of my life. Trying my best to understand, trying to learn. And the amazing thing is every time that I get to see something new about her, it's the beginning of the next experience, the beginning of the next encounter. God has us designed that way so that as he unveils something to us, it will so wow our hearts that it's designed to become the beginning of my next encounter. Please lock that away. This revelation isn't so that I can learn something and hold it new in the concept level. So just hold it in my brain. That's not why he reveals He reveals so that our relationship can grow deeper with him and it's the beginning of the next encounter. So this is that kind of revelation, if we let it be. Every one of us will leave here blessed at the level that we're committed to be blessed. In counseling, one of the things I tell pretty often is that we train each other how we want to be treated, especially between husbands and wives. We train the other person how to treat us by our reactions. Well, I want to tell you this morning, you will leave at the level of blessing that you desire to receive. Because if you come open, if that funnel is ready for God to pour into you, he will pour into you this morning. He will pour into us. Beginning in Genesis 24, I'm going to begin in verse 1. This is a long story. I'm not going to read it all, but I need to make a few points in this part of the story. Beginning with verse 1. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, put, I pray thee, thy hand under thy thigh. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go into my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure, the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again into the land from whence thou came? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son there again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before you, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. I want to stop right there for just a second because what I want you to understand in this story, one of the very first sermons I preached many, many years ago was out of this passage based on this truth. We're so blessed in the reality of the Old Testament, as Paul taught us, that those things are back there, according to 1 Corinthians 10, they're back there to paint us pictures. They're back there for experiences. Are they true? Yes. They're not illustrations, but God had a purpose in showing in in the Old Testament something that we needed to see so that we could understand it more profoundly in the New Testament. So here's one of these pictures, and it's not very complicated. Here is a father who has a son of promise, his only begotten son, and he sent a servant to find a bride for this only begotten son. Again, the symbolism here, the reference is not hard. This is God sending the Holy Spirit 
to secure a bride for his only begotten son. It's a beautiful story and it unfolds in a spectacular way to tell us not only about the father, but also to tell us about Rebecca's response. How should the bride respond to this servant who's come? How should the church, how should we respond to the Holy Spirit? That's what this story is about from beginning to end. That is this story. I want to read just a little bit more beginning in verse 8. And if the woman will not be willing to follow you, then thou shalt be clear from this oath. Only bring not my son there again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear him concerning this matter. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed for all the goods of his master were in his hands. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia under the city of Nahor. Okay, so the servant has left. He's departed. We get to read next, if we read further, about him coming to a well. And he's saying to God, God, let the woman who comes be willing to give me a drink and also be willing to water the camels. Let this be the story. And he said, so he's waiting at this well. And here comes Rebecca. And immediately she, when he asks for a drink, she gives him a drink and she says, let me not only give you a drink, but let me water your camels. Can you imagine out of a well watering 10 thirsty camels? It was a level of commitment, a resolve that it was going to take. And the servant saw it, this unnamed servant saw it and knew that she was the one. How she responded to him, how her family responded, all of those things are a great witness and testimony of what our response is supposed to be to God's calling as the bride of Christ. I want to just go to the end of the story for just a second. I want you to, I want you to see the end because she agrees to go with him. She agrees to go with this unnamed servant to be the bride of the son's only begotten. Verse 63, the same chapter, verse 63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the evening tide, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. So can you just see her? She's, she's riding along on those camels. She reaches into her cigarette package, gets her out a camel, and lights it up. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure that's, the, that's what, exactly what that means, but it says she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, what man is that walking in the field to meet us? Get this picture. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And the servant has said, it is my master. There she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah. And she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What a beautiful story of a selection of a bride, the bride's response, and the moment when the bride and the bridegroom got to meet. And this marriage was consummated. I want to tell you, it is a powerful picture, an illustration that truly happened of what our encounter with God is designed to be. His bride in a relationship with him. I want us to focus though, what the revelation was based on is verse 10, kind of the odd one the innocuous one that would not be the one where we would draw much attention. But if you'll go back to verse 10, this is what it says. And the servant, the Holy Spirit, took 10 camels. 
Now, please remember in numerology in the scripture, the number 10 means ordinal completion. You could substitute the word all. The 10 means everything. Everything that could be counted was complete and full. So the servant brought with him 10 camels. And then it says, of his master, and he departed. And notice this, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. Why was he carrying everything that the master wanted him to carry? Why was he carrying everything that the master owned? He was carrying the master's wealth. He was carrying the master's power. He was carrying the master's presence. Everything, is, that's what that means. Everything that Abraham could give this servant, he gave him. Why? What was he going to do with everything he was carrying? What do you think? What was he going to do? What was the purpose of him taking it? Yeah, he was going to give it to her. Everything he had held nothing back, had absolutely nothing held in reserve. And he was taking it so that he could offer it to her. He was holding nothing back. There was a message that desperately needed to be sent from Abraham's heart to this wife's heart that everything I have, notice the camels came back with them. They didn't give it to the family, gave it to her. She was the recipient of everything that the father had because he wanted to send her a message. You're not just coming back to be the possession of my son. You're coming back to be that blessing, that reality that is going to own everything that the father has. Now we get to see that in this Old Testament picture. It was all made for the person who would in faith respond to that servant. It was designed to be given to them. There's a chronic problem within the Christian church today regarding our intended relationship with God. We talked a lot about this in Bible study this morning. I hear it all the time. And I want you to take this framed correctly. We keep telling the world that the good news is that Jesus came to take away my sin. And I do not want to diminish that truth by even a single ounce because it is tremendously powerful. But I want to tell you that is not the good news. That is only part of the good news. It's the beginning of the good news statement. Yes, my sins need to be dealt with. And yes, because my sins are dealt with, someday I will get to go to be in heaven with him. Someday I will get to go live with him because my sins are now no longer blocking that access that I have to heaven. But that was not the good news. The good news was that Jesus, who now came to deal with my sin, had now created a clean vessel that God himself could come live in. That's the good news. The good news was not for us to leave this earth someday and get to go to be in in heaven with him. The good news is that God gets to leave heaven and come back and dwell upon this earth in me and in you. That was the intended purpose. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You see, that is the amazing good news. Not only that I'm saved from my sin, but that I am empowered. I have a provision 
I have a relationship with God that allows him to live through me so that upon this earth, God can rule, God can reign, God can show, demonstrate, love people, change people, deliver people. And he chooses to do it through this vessel, our vessels that he has now cleaned by the blood of Jesus. That's the good news. But there's still, even with all of that told, there's still this chronic problem within the church. You know, we teach this, we've shared it. All these things, God did not send his son to die to pay such a price so that we can be servants in his kingdom. This has been the, what we've been covering in Bible study. He did not come and pay that price so that I could be a servant in his kingdom. And sadly, churches have altered the message a little bit and said that the way that we become great in the kingdom of God is by serving, putting the servant's position in that prominent position. And I want to tell you with all sincerity, God did not pay such a price. He did not offer his son who became sin for us so that we could be servants in his kingdom. He did that so that we could be sons who have a relationship with a father so that we could be children who have an intimate personal relationship with God on high, the father of us all. Please understand that, that that is a shift. Let's look at it. I want you to see it in Galatians chapter four. We read this for the last couple of weeks, but we need to go back to it once again. Galatians four, in this passage, we get to read how by his sacrifice, his payment, we're saved to be sons and daughters of our father. And if sons, heirs, and if heirs, joint heirs. Let's go to verse one, Galatians four. Now I say that the heir, the master's child, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. So he's saying there's a point in our lives, even though we are the children of the master, children of the king, until we reach a level of maturity, we're going to function as servants. And then he goes on to say, this is the way servants function. He said, but the child is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage. Notice that word. We're in bondage under the elements of the world. And later he calls them the beggarly elements. Again, this isn't confusing. That word elements is the same word where we get the word elementary. Again, how do we teach elementary children? How do we guide them? We tell them. We begin to help them understand. These are the things that you do that are good. Do those. These are the things that are bad. Don't do those. And he's saying that is the elementary way to live. And that a child, even though an heir, will live that way until something happens. Until there's a moment, a change in their life. Well, I want to tell you, the church is stuck. Because you can't tell the difference very much in the churches between those who are sons and those who are servants. I want to tell you in any place where you would go and actually see this lived out, you would absolutely be able to tell a son from a servant in anyone's home where Max just came back from. There's this very clear distinction between the children of someone and the servants of someone. You can distinctly tell it. Yeah, several of you have been there. You can tell it. Anywhere this occurs, there's a unique difference and there's no confusion. Well, in churches, it's strange because we were designed to be sons, but you can't tell any difference because we function very, very much as servants. But he said we weren't designed that way. All that does in the Christian life is create bondage. All that will do, anybody who tries to take this book 
and let it become a guide about what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do is going to create bondage. And I know that's a bold statement. But you want to understand why there's churches sitting on every corner, why Christians can't get along? It's because we have reduced this book to a guidebook telling us what to do. Those things that are good do those. Those things that are bad don't do those. And we can't agree. So all this book has done is create division because we, will, we refuse to let the Holy Spirit become the guide in it. And which will create unity because it was always designed to be a book that we approach by the reality of the Holy Spirit who said, I will lead you into all truth. And what we will find immediately is that this book was not ever designed to tell us what to do. It was always designed to tell us who we are. And I want to tell you, there's a powerful difference. There's a powerful difference in, in, in letting this book teach us by the work of the Holy Spirit to teach us who we are. We have remained under those beggarly elements those elementary things, trying to simply understand the Christian life. This is what Christians do. And if you want to be a good Christian, you do more. If you want to be a great Christian and you are able to stay away from these things and these things and these things, and that's pleasing to God. And here we're reading Galatians by the hands of Paul, by the writing of the Holy Spirit, that that is a beggarly element that does nothing but create bondage. But that has been the church's message. That's been what we have told year after year after year. Do those things that are right. Avoid those things that are wrong. And God is saying in this passage, listen to me. That is not what I designed. That is not what I purposed. Look at the rest of this. Verse four. But when the fullness of time was come. So here's a change. Anytime you see that conjunction, but you'll know something different is coming. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Do you see the difference? He's saying, I want you to move away from those beggarly elements of trying to understand what's right and wrong. And I want you to become a son because it says very clearly in the scriptures in Romans that a son will always know what the father's doing. The son will always know the father's heart. You want to know why the end of Sunday morning services always look kind of different? It's because I have no desire anymore to create something up here that is designed by us and not coming from the heart of God. And if I don't see, then I can't do anything. That doesn't mean that you can't see something. Two or three weeks ago, I didn't see a single thing. And Kate walked up on the stage and began to speak. And then the ministers came and the ministry time began. I didn't see any of it. It doesn't have to come by me. It comes by the reality of the Holy Spirit talking to each one of us, showing each one of us, telling each one of us the reality of what, is, what he wants us to see. But we are stuck trying to get it right, trying to get church right, trying to do those things that are right and avoid those things that are wrong. And we've beaten ourselves up and wore ourselves out with that message. And God said, that's not how I built you. I built you to become a son, to know me, intimately know me, know my will, know my ways, know my purpose. The rights and wrongs will absolutely take care of themselves when we realize that we are sons of God. Verse 6, and because you are sons, because of this relationship, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Where therefore are no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I don't know how we have messed this message up. I don't know how we got this confused. We are sons and daughters of God, living in his favor, living under his blessing. 
And we're still missing it. We're still not getting it. I don't know how, again, it could be any more plain. It says it. No more a servant but a son. No more a servant but a daughter. No more a servant but a child. So, so far, I hope that I've said things that you generally agree to. This hasn't yet quite got to the revelation that hit me. But there's one thing that is attached to this truth that, again, that we're still missing. Let me give you this illustration. Jeremy, why is it easy for you to go to the bank, whether you go inside or go to the window? Why is it easy for you to fill out a piece of paper when they lay the money on the counter? Why is it easy for you to take it? Because it's yours. We don't even hesitate. We have a need or we have a bill or we have something that is going on in our life. We go very easily and get what is ours and we access it. We take it. Either whether we do this by hand or electronically by our check, however we do it, we take that which is ours, we, we take it and we appropriate it against the need that is in my life. I pay a bill with it. I give it away. I bless others. What if somebody came to you and said, Jeremy, I'm, I'm rich beyond measure. I've got more money than I know what to do with. And every time you need some, I want you to come ask me for it. What's going to happen every single time that enters your mind? Yeah. What have I got to do for it? Every single time that we would, we would think about that, we would hesitate, even though the other person has said, I'll give it to you anytime you ask, unless there's something different in your wiring than mine, it would still be difficult to go ask them. No, I don't care how free they've made it with the way I'm wired to go access something that somebody says that I can have if I want it versus going and actually getting something that is already mine. Again, unless you're wired significantly differently, my suspicion is that it's the same way for you. It's your money and you don't mind spending it. It's very acceptable, very normal to take it and to, to use it as you see fit. Again, you appropriate it against the need and you never hesitate. So why in the Christian world would we have a need, a broken heart, a lack of peace, a lack of strength, a lack of patience, a lack of hope, a lack of understanding. When we have that need, why does that need persist a day or a week or a year or 10 years or 30 years? Why does that need persist? It's because it has never dawned on us. We've never completely accepted that what God did in Genesis 15 what God has done for us is that he has already given to us everything that we would ever need. He's not saying you have to come ask me for it. I want you to learn to access that which has already been given to you and use it freely every day abundantly against those needs within your life and in the needs of other people. I want you to do that. Take which is already yours. I draw this picture in my office several times a week. God has designed for us the story of my life, his perfect will for me. And long before I was ever born, when I first entered his mind back here, maybe a thousand years ago or 10,000 or a hundred thousand or a million years ago, when I first entered the mind of God, he did something. If I understand the truth correctly, he packed a box, a crate, and he set it aside, but in that crate 
was appropriated everything I would ever need to live this life that he had designed for me. Every ounce of patience, love, kindness, resources, help, fullness, truth, forgiveness, everything was packed in that box, set aside for me. It's got my name on it, the name he calls me. It just sits there until the day that I became a believer. Until that day, by my choice and by my faith, I asked him to save me and I suddenly joined that line that he has for my life. Because in that moment, he knows that I can hear him spiritually. He knows that I know he has a voice and that I, that I can have a relationship with him. And he delivers then to his son or to his daughter who is brand new in faith. He delivers that box, goes, gets a forklift, picks it up and brings it to you and gives it to you 100% in that moment. Why then don't we use it against our needs? We sit here for a day two days, 10 days, 10 months, 10 years, facing the same problems, living under the same heaviness, wore down by the same burdens, facing the same challenges, evaluating the same opportunities, day after day after day, because we have not yet understood that I can go to the bank and access something that is already mine. We keep thinking we have to ask God for it. And I hear people pray, And I know it doesn't upset God, but it needs to be corrected. It needs to be changed. When we're praying and say, Lord, give me strength. What's his answer? No, no, I cannot give you strength. Why? Yeah, I cannot give you what is already yours. I can't give you strength if I gave you all the strength in that box. I can't give you patience. I can't give you courage. I can't give you more love. I cannot give you what you already have. And every time we pray, Lord, give me strength, give me patience, give me peace. All we're saying is a statement of a lack of faith that that which God has already given me, I have received. And it's chronic within the Christian church. That's why we see the church look a whole lot like the world because we don't know that we've been given something as sons and daughters of God that we're very, very free to use. I love that old old hymn, Freely, Freely. Freely I've received, freely I can give. It makes good sense. We just don't live this way. We do not live knowing that everything we would need, peace, joy, mercy, strength, authority, power, patience, virtue, honor, love, kindness, forgiveness has already been given. And we don't know how to write a check or swap our debit card spiritually and appropriate that which has already been given to our needs right now. So we live with them. And God is saying, please understand this message. If you've got a need this morning, if your life is in turmoil, if you're, if you're having difficulty, you're struggling, I've got the answer and it's already been given. I have not held anything back. Everything you need, everything is here for you right now. Listen to this. Go with me to Luke chapter 15. I love this story. I'm not going to read all of it because you know it too well. Luke 15, beginning with verse 11. It tells of a certain man who had two sons. And one of them came to him and said, Father, I want that which is, is mine. I want that which is my portion. And we know the story, he went away and went into a far country and wasted it in riotous living. And he's sitting out there 
hoping that he can eat the same food that the pigs eat, realizing that my servants in my father's house eat better than this. So he devises this plan. I'll go home. And when I get to my father, I will say, Father, I have sinned against you. I have rebelled against you. I've wasted all this money. I'm asking if I can come home and be a servant in your house. That is his plan. That's what he's come up with. He knows he will be better off. If I can just get to my father's house, I will be better off. I'll just go and be a servant. But the story is beautifully told as Jesus tells it. So he goes home. He starts walking toward home. And I can only imagine what he looks like. I I hope we don't leave out this part of the story. Because I doubt that he had time to take a shower. To go buy new clothes. To look presentable to his father. He had to show up in the presence of his father exactly the way that he was. He had to have been dirty. He had to have been broken. He had to have been wasted in some ways if he hadn't eaten. But all this time the father was watching him. Watching the road. And it says, while he was still afar off, still a long way off, the father sees this figure out in the distance. He knows who it is. He knows it's his son. And the story so beautifully told is that the father begins to run. He gets out there to him. He begins to run and he gets out there to him. And the son begins his speech. And the son says, father, I've sinned against you. And he begins to tell the story. He can't even get the whole story out of his mouth. He never even gets to ask to be a servant. And then we pick up the story in verse 22. But, that conjunction, he didn't let the son finish. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Who wouldn't be excited that this one that they thought was dead has now come home? This isn't a minor thing because though he has wasted everything that he had, he is now coming back and living under the father's provision, under what the father has. And the father says, get the robe. We're going to restore everything to him so that he will not even question. He's not a servant in my house. He's a son in my home. Put the robe on him, put the shoes on him, put the ring on his finger. Go kill the fatted calf because he has come home. What has he done at this point to deserve any of that? Nothing. He has done nothing to deserve what the father is giving him in that moment. Do you get it? We don't get it because we deserve it. We get it because he's our father. He didn't give us all this stuff because we deserved it. He gave us the provision of a lifetime because we are his children. He did it before we had accomplished a single thing in his name. Talk to anyone about Jesus. He gave us the provision at the moment that we became saved and nothing had been accomplished at that point. Because he knew something. If anything's going to be accomplished, it's going to be because the provision was given and the provision was received. That's the piece that we're missing. We've never taken possession, ownership of that which God has freely given but we have such a beautiful picture in the, in the story of the elder brother. Let's look at it. Now, his elder son was in the field. And most of us have, we talked about this in Sunday school a few weeks ago, and most everybody there had sympathy for the older brother. Like, I'd feel the same way. He's wasted all the money, comes back, they throw a banquet, and here I am out in the field. I'm not going into that party. Who do they think they are? 
Do they not know who I am? Do they not, Robert Dalton's statement, do they not know who I think I am? Here he is. Let's read about him. Elder brother was in the field and as he came and drew nigh of the house, he heard music and dancing. Isn't that interesting? There was music and dancing in the father's presence. I like that. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, My, thy brother has come and thy father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore came the, his father out and entreated him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years, notice these words, please notice these words, the words of the elder brother. Lo, these many years do I serve you, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Who does that sound like? That sounds like a servant. I have done exactly what you asked me to do. I have never broken your commandments. And you never even gave me a goat to kill that I could have with my friends. You see, all he had assessed, all the work he had performed and all the commandments he had kept, he didn't ask for a fatted calf. He didn't say, you never killed a fatted calf for me. You never put the robe on me. You never put the ring on me. You never put those shoes on my feet. Because as a servant with that mentality, he thought as good as he was, was to get a goat so that he could have a banquet with his friends. That will always be the servant's heart. And here this son is who's come home, who's wasted everything, had done nothing yet. But look at the father's response. This is where it really takes you back. Verse 30. But as soon as thy son son has come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me. Listen to this. And all that I have is yours. Living as a servant in a house where you're a son, where everything has already been given. I cannot describe better the chronic problem within the Christian church today. Living as servants in a house where we were designed to be sons and everything already given. He's saying, you could have had a thousand fatted calves. You could have wore every robe. Every pair of shoes was yours. Every ring is yours. There's not a single thing as a son that I have held back from you, but it's been your choice, your continued choice to live under the beggarly elements, trying to do those things that are right and do the command, avoid those things that are wrong. And you've chosen to live as a servant in a place where you are actually a son and everything has already been given unto you. That is the reality of the Christian church, that we have functioned as servants in a place where we were designed to be his children. Again, so much today is we do not believe that everything that the Father has is ours. So we refuse to spend it. Again, we know that he's the rich man that we were talking about with Jeremy that has all the money in the world and comes and says, it's all available for you, but every time you want it, you've got to come ask. Then every time we will hesitate to come ask. If we believe for a second that that somebody has deposited money in my account. It's mine. It has been given freely to me. I will be willing to use it against my need. I don't know what your need is this morning. I don't know your story. This I do know, that the answer to it, if it's peace you need, wisdom you need, comfort that you need, and God is saying the answer 
is within your reach. Learn to reach in that, into that provision, that box that God delivered. Learn every day to reach into that box and live under its provision. Take it in, use it for yourself, and then let it flow out of you to be the blessing to others. We were simply, simply made, designed in the heart of God to be recipients of that which is already given to us, is already ours, appropriated for my needs, my, my situation. Live in peace, live in strength, live, live in hope, live in joy, live in wisdom because I've, it's already been given to me. And then let it flow out of me to touch the lives of others just as freely. Freely we have received, freely give. I don't know how to paint the picture more clearly. The question is this morning, will we finally, not because somebody else can pray for us or somebody else can give us something, but will we finally receive that which God has already so freely given? His spirit, his reality, his very presence and his person that he gave to us. Will we finally receive that which he has given? Do you believe this morning that it's yours? If you do, use it this morning. Use it. Whatever your need, let it meet it. Whatever your situation, let it calm it. Whatever brokenness there is in your relationship, let it heal it. Let it give something into you. Use it. Spend it freely in abundance. Not as beggars. Not in poverty. But use the Father's gift to you. To bless yourself and and certainly to bless others. There's no reason not to do that this morning. Thank you for being here this morning. You're dismissed.